0: Welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about open source sustainability for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? What is the proper way to say hello in the English language? Very excited to have our guest on today. Before I introduce him, I want to make sure you know who the other voices are in this podcast. I am, of course, Richard Litauer. Hello, everyone. Great to be here. Oh, thank you, Richard. No problem, Richard. And then we also have on this podcast, Ben, possibly Ben Nichols. Ben, how are you doing? I'm good. It's been a while, but I'm happy to be back and, yeah, excited to be part of the conversation. Always happy to have other hosts on the podcast so I talk a bit less. Our guest today is very exciting to have on. We have Martin Woodward. Martin is joining us from outside of Belfast, but he also works for a large international company. You may have heard of it called GitHub, where he is the VP of Developer Relations. Martin, how are you doing today? Hello!
1: Is the official way of saying hello, as we all know, from using the original, was it it came about from the telephone, didn't it? Is that completely apocryphal or whatever?
0: I believe that (laughs) is the case. There was another thing that almost won instead of hello. What was it? it? Ahoy. Ahoy, Ahoy, that was it, yeah. Ahoy, I always like Moshi Moshi. So, Martin, tell us a bit more about what VP of DevRel means for you. What exactly is that role at GitHub?
1: GitHub's an interesting one because DevRel in a lot of organizations, it can be about like raising awareness amongst developers of your product and things. Turns out most developers kind of know what GitHub is. And so the problem with GitHub isn't awareness of GitHub itself. So a lot of time... I'm spending helping make sure kind of open source maintainers can be successful with GitHub, that they feel that they know somebody at GitHub who they can then go to when things aren't working out for them and get help, realize that we're there to support them. And then also making sure that as we do new products and features and things that the whole community can kind of understand where they fit and. GitHub isn't just a place where you go to get free stuff, but it's a place where you go to do work. And it just so happens that we give away lots of free stuff to people who are doing things in the open source community.
0: So this podcast is part of Maintainer Month, which we're doing in collaboration with GitHub, where we're celebrating Mm. maintainers in the world and the work that they do. I guess I want to ask an origins question to follow up on that. Surely that DevRel is the entire company of GitHub. I'm kind of confused. How do you distinguish between the two? And how do you make sure that the work that you do helps out people who are maintainers? So
1: Ben was involved in some of the earlier days of GitHub as well. Like when GitHub was originally created, like you say, everybody at GitHub did DevRel. Everybody at GitHub was talking to people in the community all the time. But you quite often notice as organizations grow that they need to develop different skills. Like a rule of thumb I have when I've worked in startups and things is when the size of the company grows by an order of magnitude, that usually means you need completely different like processes and ways of structuring the business to make sure you can account for that. So what we found with GitHub and things like with the day GitHub letter from Isaac, there was times in GitHub's history where it wasn't listening to the community and the community started to feel disconnected from GitHub. But if you were to cut anybody open in GitHub, strongly recommend you don't do that. But if you were to do that, they would bleed open source. They would bleed community because that's where the people who work at GitHub come from. So we needed to make sure that we were listening to the community and then also that we were still listening to open source maintainers and things. So we created a DevRel team to make sure that there was somebody within the company that was focused on that. The DevRel team is pretty small compared to the size of the community. So we have less than one person per 10 million developers, I believe. So that is not hugely like one-to-one scale or anything. And so we can't do what we do without the whole company not caring about maintainers lives are and things. And so we just provide those bridges and provide the structure to allow GitHub to listen to the community. And then also make sure we connect with various folks around that we're talking to people like Sustain, that we're talking to open source maintainers, large and small projects and making sure that they know we're listening to them and that we're trying to address stuff. But also here's some of the cool things that we have done that you might not know about that you can take advantage of.
0: Tell me about the origin of Maintainer Month. I know this is mainly being run by Abigail and Cara. Who yeah. Are both amazing people. I wish Abby could be on this podcast, but she's in Vancouver right now running a stall for maintainers at North American Open Source Summit or whatever it's called. Yeah. So tell me more about how this whole month started and how it's gotten to where it is. This kind of started
1: in... The pandemic previously, we have kind of had other things like maintainerati was one and some of the sustained meetings where we've kind of got together with maintainers. One of the things we realized was there's a lot of value to get people together, have a bit of like a group therapy session amongst everybody. So we originally did like a maintainer summit in 2020 and when everyone was virtual anyway, we thought, well, let's all get together virtually. We did that in June. And then the following year, we decided, well, hey, this kind of goes against the ethos of open source to have this closed maintainer summit. Why don't we make this a bigger thing and involve the whole community? And so that's when we started bringing in and opening it up to everybody and like could say, hey, we're going to talk about maintainers and what it means to be a maintainer, what it means to support the people who are running our open source for us. Let's do it in that maintainer month. But it was still in June. And then this time we were like, hey, alliteration is awesome. Let's make sure we do that. What would be a better month than May for maintainer months? So we can have maintainer May or may-tainer and all that sort of stuff. And so that's why we moved it a month earlier. So yeah, that's their history. Lots of people involved, you know, inside and outside of GitHub, from yourselves, from the people over at ChangeLog, from the people in the industry as well. And then uh, Parasels and, say, Abby have been... Are highly involved from our side in sort of driving things and pushing things forward so
2: yeah all good am i right in saying that this is officially the third year of maintainer month has been run by github it's the second year that it's been a month it was a week right in the first yeah time. it was a week in the first yeah, one yeah, right? yeah. yeah and yeah. it's I mean, not
1: run by github it's run by everybody's doing let's it. say say it's orchestrated orchestrated by, initiated, by. initiated. Yes, okay that yeah that okay. works yeah like so everything in the community you've got to kind of is that whole cathedral and a bizarre thing. You sort of start it happening and then you find everybody starts to pile in and think, oh, that's a remarkably good idea. So let's go do that. So, yeah.
2: I was going to ask because one of the most enjoyable things about working at GitHub, I spent a couple of years there, I think maybe 2018 until 20, was the kind of pitch in and make things up as you go along. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about Maintainer Month is that it does seem like it's evolving. Is it something that you're involving in the direction that's kind of led by maintainers themselves? Do you actively speak to maintainers and find out what you want to do for the next year? Or is it a combination of things that you find out over the course of the year, plus like a direction that you would like to take it?
1: It's mostly the former of what do people want. One of the things that was most surprising from our initial maintainer summit and then like maintainer week was actually what maintainers wanted was they did want a safe place to be able to talk, but then also maintainers also wanted to kind of share best practices and skills around some kind of like the soft skills. Everyone in a project, we all get into maintaining of open source because we have some wacky idea that we kind of published on GitHub or somewhere else because was good for me and so I'm just sharing it with the world because that feels like a good thing and then other people start using it and then all of a sudden you find you're the maintainer of an open source project and you're like, huh this was interesting I didn't really plan on this. I'm a nerd. I can barely kind of organize my friends to go on a lunch. never mind organize a whole community across the whole like world. how on earth do I do this? And I learned by talking to other maintainers and seeing maintainers that were doing exceptionally well and sort of learning different bits from how they picked up stuff. So we wanted to kind of create a place where we could share best practices, but then also try to educate the community a little bit about who all is actually driving this community of stuff that you're relying on and why they're doing it. And because we noticed that there is sometimes a misunderstanding in people who are just consuming open source who haven't maintained any of their own. And so we kind of wanted to raise awareness a little bit also to the general developer population of, hey, these people are usually volunteers. They're usually doing this out of the goodness of their own heart. If you're coming to actually be nice and help out and provide a meaningful bug report, if you're going to submit a PR, if you provide tests with your PR then it's probably more likely to get in, and here's why. I just raise some of the awareness of what all goes into maintaining an open source project, so then not just maintainers themselves can learn, but also people who are contributing or like consuming from open source also learn how to interact better in open source. So just, again, don't think it's going to solve all the world's problems overnight or anything. We just wanted to kind of chip away a little bit, do what we can.
0: I'm curious if you put thought into how Maintainer is a grab bag that's a bit too large of a word, right? It it applies to authors, it applies to people who do triage, it applies to people who are code committers. How have you broken that down into segments as part of Maintainer Month?
1: I always think about this contribution funnel, and I'll provide you a link for the show notes. The contribution funnel in handy tweet form in 280 characters or less but basically, you have the different scales of involvement with open source. You know, 99.9% of people just consume. You'd never hear from them. If within the first 10 minutes of them looking at your project, if it doesn't do what they want or they doesn't think it does what they want, then they'll go away and they'll never come back and they'll never speak to you. And that's fine. Then a small percentage of those come down into the funnel and start to contribute time, whether that's talking about your project on a podcast, talking about their project to your friends, whether that's talking about at a conference or maybe it's fixing a typo, fixing bugs, something like a small, something small, they give you back a little bit of time. And then only a small percentage of those actually come down and start to give you bugs, start to give you features, and then only a small percentage of those stick around and help you run that project. And when I say the word maintainer, I mean the people who are running the open source projects that you depend on. There are contributors, people who give back to open source. Again, not always through code. It might be through documentation. It might be through triage roles within a community, things like that. But I tend to think of the maintainer as the people who are setting the direction and helping run the project. And how a project defines who is a maintainer or not It very much depends on the governance within their own project, you know, and there are lots of different like patterns and archetypes that we see around the industry for that, but how they define it for themselves differs per project. And we as people who work with maintainers a lot need to be respectful of that as well. And then as GitHub, we need to be very aware of that, that different projects are structured in very different ways. So what might work for Kubernetes probably doesn't work for say Gina, who runs Octoprint.
2: And it's different for everybody. So I have to say it's interesting to bring up this point about open source authors versus maintainers. And I think listeners of the podcast will remember a conversation, I think it's 157 with Joel Vossman about these experiences with Flossbank, where for me, as someone that's worked in open source for as long as I can remember, he specifically started talking about the idea of like an author being someone who, maybe a software developer who has just going to be contributing code because they happen to have created it anyway, instead of a maintainer being someone who feels wants or you know, maybe feels is necessary to kind of step into that role where they're actively maintaining. And I think there will be some people who find themselves in that position, some people who want to kind of take on that challenge and don't know where to go, and where to look for support and assistance. And then there'll be those people who are just like, no, nope, I did this for myself. One of the things that it looks like you're paying more attention to with Maintainer Months this year is making a resource library. So, through the website, you seem to be kind of publishing more and kind of keeping a repository of information for people that want to kind of step into that space. Is that something that you're kind of actively doing and something that you see kind of continuing to do throughout the year?
1: Yeah, I think we've been wanting to invest in for a while and we've been failing. And then I think it was Abby actually, I can't remember if it was Abby or Cara, we're like, well, why are we doing this? This is all about open source. Why don't we just do this together with the community? Because the community are constantly saying, well, do you have such and such a guide's like, how do I do this? How do I do that? And so we thought, well, let's again, let's just create a place where if people want to share, then they can. And that's where we will do our work that we're doing. But if people want to share their stuff as well, awesome. And then we'll see what happens. And I think it's fair to say that you always get surprised when you do that as to what actually bubbles up and what people take the time to go and invest in. And it's usually different to what you thought, which brings me to one of the reasons why open source works for a lot of places is it because if you look at so I'm like agile software development guy, blah, blah blah, in my day job, and like agile is the way to go. It also allows you to be agile because it allows you to get feedback instantly from the community rather than waiting for people to even have been before you've even compiled the software, never mind before you've compiled it, deployed it, and had it running on their machine, you get feedback instantly on the ideas. and again, This is a great, like the more we can do in the open for these types of things is better because again, it allows us to iterate and get feedback and develop as we go and shapes kind of what we do. But to answer your question, Ben, do we want to invest in this? Heck yeah, because we see there's a huge gap there, but also very much depending on where the community wants to go, what problems have people got. We'll
0: see. So this is the Sustained podcast. So I'm kind of curious, where do you see maintainership going in the next 10 years? One thing that
1: I'm spending a lot of time kind of being concerned about right now is around some of the funding challenges that exist, you know, in terms of making things a bit more sustainable. We see people wanting to go full time. We see all of the VCs pushing the companies they're backing, that they must have an open source strategy as part of a thing that they're pushing. None of us have the answers yet, I'm afraid. Like, sorry to break that to everybody, but we're all making this stuff up as we go along. And then I also see a challenge in that different people want different things out of open source. You have like the people who are trying to build companies who want one thing. You have people who are trying to just build a living for themselves and a kind of like a gig economy way kind of works for them. And then you have people who that's completely abhorrent, completely against like the whole ethos of open. No, 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 no. We should be doing this for the good of everybody. And And then you've got people, again, who are a collective of people who are working on some cool stuff in the open. Homebrew is always a great example to me. They're fine. They're happy doing what they're doing. But there are times where they want to get together and solve a problem together that they or buy something that belongs to the open source project and not any one individual within that project who might start working on the project for good or bad reasons, yeah, those are the challenges that we're seeing. How to do that and how to do that in a way that involves a whole community and doesn't have just one player in the middle of it. it feels like a good thing.
0: I have an immediate question around okay. VCs. Oh. I haven't heard of VCs asking for an open source strategy. Can you just elaborate more on that? I'm seeing more and more discussions with startups
1: where part of their... Again, maybe this is because I'm in the developer relations space, And so when people talk to me, they are always coming from like a developer relations angle, possibly, but it is common in a developer focused company for the venture capital firm to be asking, well, what's your open source strategy? Which bits of this are open? Which bits of this are closed? It's part of an awareness play as part of an adoption grab, which is often the thing with VCs, you know. And so you see it around the industry. And then you also see some fast growing companies who are doing a ton of stuff they do out in the open, like Next.js with the cell and things like this. So, yeah, I see more and more that VCs are asking for it. Again, could be a very biased viewpoint of where I see it in the industry, though, but it's definitely something I see.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to me because I don't know if I've seen resources for how to pitch open source to your VCs when you're an open source maintainer. And that sounds like a really great resource to have. I know I've been in discussions similar to that, where I've said, like, here's how you pitch your project to potential funders, but never specifically like, here's what you say if anyone who's going to invest asks that question. I think it's just a cool idea.
2: Yeah. It seems to me like we've got a potentially obvious bridge here. I was going to ask anyway, because knowing how small the DevRel team is and knowing how much you kind of pull things together rather than necessarily standing out in front for the organization. How much of an involvement do you have in like the GitHub Accelerator program and the N12 fund that's kind of coming up? And do you see your team getting involved in that project? Do you see there being a nice pathway to kind of enable projects to jump on either of those pathways in the future? Yeah, so just for the listener's benefit, like the,
1: the GitHub Accelerator program is a program where basically... Get up stake in just under a million dollars and sharing it with advice from the community, sharing it between a bunch of companies who are looking to be startups, open source backed and investing it in those. And then the M12 fund is a fund that where we're partnered with M12, who are a venture capital firm from our parent company at Microsoft and helping them again, make connections and invest in open source help people provide a growth path there. How much are my team involved? Well, right now, quite a lot, actually, because we mentioned Kara, who is awesome and part of the project, and Abby, they are both actually driving the accelerator right now. It was kicked off by a different part of the org, and then Kara and Abby are actually driving the first cohort of people through the accelerator. The way it works is it's basically a group of open source startups and bring them together in very regular meetings and then give them a bunch of the training that they're actually asking for as well as the funding. So it's no good just, you know, here's 20k, cheers, good luck, off you go with that. One of our advantages is being able to pick up the phone to people and they actually answer. And so we can use that to help these startups and people again, and sort of say, get some people together. Who would you like to have conversations with? And then also what training can we go by and then bring into you and give you at scale? Because you as individuals could never go hire this person to come talk to you, but we can pay them not that much money in the scale of things to come talk to 20 startups. That's awesome. Yeah, we can definitely do that. And so that's what they're doing. That's the current cohorts running through right now. And then I think we need to go see what the feedback is from this cohort. Again, how did this work? How did they get on? Uh, What value did we add? And then decide what we do with the next cohort, adapt and sort of see how that goes. So very involved right now is what I would say, Ben. And sadly, it's like literally all the same people, you know, people are always amazed how few people are actually there doing the things. But it's the same with our whole industry, isn't it really? You look around and it's always the same people doing the same things. And I've noticed that about open source as well. Like Maintainers are the givers. When you talk to them, you go usually find amazing things that they do in their spare life in their normal lives as well. Like they're the people who stand up in their community and volunteer schools, volunteer for church groups, vo- you know, go out, litter pit, go out, build stuff. They're the people that build communities around to go do things. And you typically find that the people who put their hands up and volunteer volunteer for lots of
0: things. I had a really fun discussion with Duane O'Brien where I was talking about why am I unhappy, Dwayne? And he said, well, I did a test once and it's told me that I have these three qualities. One is that I volunteer for stuff, and two is that I take responsibility, and three is that I don't let go. Oh, and I'm a brainstormer. And so naturally, all these things lead to just overextension, volunteering for everything, trying as hard as I can, and then having issues, saying goodbye, and so just having way too much on my plate. I obviously saw corollaries between my personality and Twain, which is why he brought it up. And I was curious. I agree with you. Maintainers are givers. They often are the people who are building their communities and so forth. As part of your work with the cohort, as part of your work with GitHub at DevRel, what has been done or have you done anything to help maintainers learn how to say no more easily? I know people like Mike McQuaid love talking about this. This is like his whole shtick. But I wonder if GitHub has taken any role in saying, listen, don't overextend yourself as a maintainer.
1: So there's the stuff we're doing as part of things I maintain a month and getting maintainers together. So one of the things we do is we have sessions where we share people's tactics of saying no or not yet, or however they can justify it to themselves. Also, people's tactics for how they can provide a safe space for their community to vent that's not in a pull request so that snark doesn't come through sometimes and things. But as GitHub, the company, we take some of those things that maintainers are telling us and that we're hearing, and then we feed that back into product features. So for instance, being able to set your status was one of those types of features. So you could kind of let people know what was going on. Being able to set interaction limits on a project. So you could kind of say, you know, if things were getting heated or you'd been... And used, and you were getting everybody in, and it was low value conversation, and it wasn't making it a non fun place for the people to hang out in that are your core community. You can kind of limit the interactions that you get. And that was kind of like a philosophically that goes against some of the things we kind of believe. If you go into a repo, I can't tell you the number of times that we've had discussions about it. PRs are enabled on a public repo. That's a thing. It's not like you get a box where you can switch that off no matter how many times people have come to us and said please switch that off. It's kind of like almost like a philosophical thing if it's not archived. Interaction limits were another one of those. Of, like do we want to limit what people can do? But actually talking to open source maintainers, it was clear that was needed for their mental well-being to protect them in certain circumstances. And so that's why when we do it, it's not a permanent thing either. It's a give me a date when this gets switched off kind of option that we have and to try and explain how that works. So yes, you sometimes see it arrive in product features on GitHub. But more importantly, I think it's like doing things like this as well. Hey, it's okay to say no. It's okay to have an open source project where you say, by the way, I'm not taking co-contributions. No, I don't care what you want. This is the way I'm going. You could be Lua or whatever it is. It's like, no, we're very opinionated about how we do it. Sure, come and have a discussion in an issue. We'll listen. But this is how we're doing it. And we're the ones that are going to be focused on it. It's fine. That's completely fine way of running a project. You don't have to take everybody's PRs because you you're got to have you maintaining this stuff. You've got to be responsible for it going forward. And then our advice is, and so the, the advice of the community is... It's fine as long as you set expectations. So just be very upfront with people about that. Put it in your VP, put it in your contributing.md file. Allow the community to understand what they're getting into when they start to come on board and get more involved about where you're at. So, yep, saying no is definitely important. To your thing, though, as well about coming in and letting go of things, one of the things that's helped me personally in that is giving myself timescales by which I'm going to be doing something. And then when i detecting early, when I know that something's starting to, I'm not getting the fun out of it, and then giving myself a timescale by which I'm going to back out of that thing, and then doing the best I can to leave that thing in a good state when I'm no longer there. And then that gets rid of the guilt on me that I've done my bit. And from that point onwards, it's kind of the community. But I didn't just run and leave. I did the best I could to hand over the reins and in- as responsible way as possible. Because otherwise what happens is you get burned out and you get to the point where you have to leave. And then you find you did leave them in a bad state. And we've all taken on projects in our lives where we've been the one picking up something in that bad state we've kind of had to drive it forwards. So the thing I do is like set a time limit. That's what I'm going to be doing it for. And then what am I going to do to get this thing into the position it needs to be so I can hand over the reins? and communicate that blah, blah, blah. And then I feel a lot better about it. That's just how I justify it in my own brain, which helps me,
0: which is all that's important after all. I like that. That also speaks to me of strategical thinking, which is makes sense given the role that you're in. So we've talked a bit about setting expectations for people beneath you as contributors for people in your community. I'm curious, What advice do you have or what thoughts do you have on setting expectations for people above you, for senior management, for funders, for projects around keeping open source and also your role as a maintainer sustainable for the long run?
1: One of the things when I've worked in companies and I'm doing open source, I like to make sure the business understands why I am doing open source and the limitations that this has. So why are we doing this in the open? And then therefore what? restrictions does that give us what are we trading off by doing this so we didn't even really mention one of the things i did in a prior life you know, i was w- one of the people at microsoft who kind of helped change how microsoft approach open source and back in like 2012 created the microsoft github org previous to that we had a thing called Coplex, which i was looking after at the time which is kind of like microsoft's version of SourceForge, you know and then we made the decision to We were kind of ghettoizing our own community, and this is how I communicated it to senior management. Hey, like nobody on GitHub knows that this community even exists, and that's where people can see other people because they don't come to this other space. So we need longer term, we need our community to be over here because that's where people will see this work, and then they'll understand that Microsoft actually does a lot in this space that they just didn't see it before. Then when it came to things like TypeScript or .NET or whatever, like some of these bigger projects when we're open sourcing them, or when it came to, say, the Git project, and we were taking a large dependency on an open source project we did not own, like we can't control what it does, what do those things mean? And for something like Git, for example, which is an existing community, that means we need to contribute back to that community in some way. Open source communities value code contribution over everything else. We've all been in communities where people talk a great game, but if you're not helping me move this project forwards, then it's just talk, you know, talk's cheap. So becoming part of the Git community meant committing long-term, we need to have people who are going to be contributing to the Git community. And for somebody like Microsoft, who is not only taking an investment, let's say at the GitHub level, of dependency on Git, but also their internal engineering systems, moving the entire Windows engineering team, moving office engineering over to source control system of Git, which they do not own, and they owned all their other previous source control systems. How do we do that in a way that will allow you to make sure the features in that version control system allow you to work and allow you to go forwards and keep using it? And so they was kind of explaining it in that way. I don't know if that answers the question. That's probably a bit too strategic, but it's like, what do we need to do? And why do we need to make those decisions? And why are we doing this? And if I hear back, we're doing it for PR or we're doing it for karma, whatever. You know what I mean? Like We're doing it for because developers will like us better. Well, great. That's cool. And yes, that is a benefit. Last time I checked, you can't cash a karma check. You can't take it to the bank and get money from it, which what businesses tend to need. And so what is the business reason for us doing this? And oftentimes for a large company, it's things like getting this into the hands of lots of people. Kubernetes, for example, let's make sure Kubernetes is awesome because we know that we can capture 5-10% of the Kubernetes community. That's a lot of money. So great. Let's go do that. Linux, why on earth do Microsoft contribute to the Linux kernel? Like, Surely they used to have a CEO that said Linux was canceled. How does that give? Turns out if Microsoft have people that work on the kernel and they make the kernel 0.05% faster, their bill for running Azure, which is their massive data center thing, just went down millions of dollars. So they more than justify that one person. And yes, to get that change into the Git project, it also has to run faster on AWS. It also has to run faster in GCP, whatever their competitors are. Turns out it doesn't matter because open source is not a zero-sum game. And just because it's worth you investing in that to get your own benefits out of it and who kind of cares what the competitors are doing, open source forces you to have the best developer experience. It forces you to have the best like customer relationships. And I would rather as a company be competing on that side rather than on some of those fundamentals, like how well can I provide the best customer experience? That's going to keep
0: me very honest as an organization. So it's all good for the end users in the end of the day, I think. Makes a lot of sense and sounds very smart from a large enterprise business Mm -hmm. model perspective. I'm curious, what do you think about different types of funding for different types of open source projects? How should they think about spending their time and money and how should they think about getting that in the first place?
1: Yeah, especially like, why are you in this? I got into open source because if I was doing .NET, then I'd want to do some Java as open source at home to keep my Java skills up to date. And if I was doing a .NET, a Java gig, I'd want to do some .NET at home to keep both those skills up to date. So that's kind of why I got involved in open source. But then I did an, a startup, which was originally came about from some people meeting together in an open source community. It was like, hey, let's go do this. We started getting calls from like banks and big industry people saying, Can we have this? And hang on a minute, if they're asking us, we probably could sell this and make money. So that's kind of how I got in. And then, got my job at Microsoft. So it's why you get involved. Is it to build a big company? Is it because you just want to work on some stuff that's interesting to you and you think other people can and so you need like the level of income to sustain you? Or are you trying to sustain an organization of like five, six, 10 people? Are you wanting to grow? You know, So it's it's kind of look at that first. Or is it I'm working on a community already and what I want to do is just like have my community come together and like be able to buy things without taking a critical dependency on me. In the latter case, things like Open Collective and whatever, that's hugely the way to go. If it's a more, I'm trying to fund myself, then is it a Patreon model? And then sponsors kind of sit somewhere in the middle as well. Get sponsors kind of sit in the middle there as well as ways of getting the money in. Just giving a PayPal link on a website works as well. So yeah. So what are you trying to do? What level are you trying to achieve? And then what value are you're giving to your end users? And what are they going to be prepared to pay for? Getting people to be prepared to pay for dev tools is insanely hard, but people are prepared to pay for things which give them value and allow them to generate their own income streams and things like that. And so, yeah, looking at those models as well is important.
2: There's always the situation if you find yourself in the position where you've built something and people are asking something of you to kind of start charging for your time as well. Yeah, that's a signal, isn't it? That's the first thing. People are like, oh, can I have some of your time? You're like, yes, my time is not included in the project. You can pay for it. It seems to me there is still a commitment from Microsoft through GitHub to invest heavily in open source and that... GitHub might be almost at the point of being the spear point of that commitment. Can you talk a little bit just because I am interested and it might be like a bit of an internal kind of interest. What is the relationship now between kind of Microsoft and GitHub? And how have you seen that evolve over the course of the last, how long has it been since GitHub was acquired? 2018. Or five years, five years now? five years. Have those conversations kind of changed? Is it still an environment where GitHub is kind of leading and Microsoft is kind of letting it do its thing, or is there kind of more of a kind of partnership now between the two entities? It's interesting how it's evolved. GitHub's definitely still in
1: separate entity and still out there working for developers, working to be the best place for developers to work together and very deliberately kind of cloud platform agnostic in that But there's an understanding from Microsoft also that's what they signed up for and GitHub wouldn't work if that wasn't the case. What's fascinating, though, is where the scale of the parent company can kind of help us do things that we couldn't do previously. So whether it's through things like M12, like the partnership with M12 to actually get some money into open source, Or frankly, having the budget and the room in kind of like the bank balance and things to be able to give away half a million dollars to open source projects, that certainly helps. And then as the relationship matures, I think the thing I've been most surprised about by is how much GitHub is still independent. I've actually been pleasantly surprised by that. Yeah, we're nearly five years in now, I guess. That's crazy. And yeah, it's still very much a separate company, very much a separate culture, but one that's not afraid to lean on the parent company when things can be done that feels in line with sort of GitHub's core values, which I don't believe have changed. I just believe that we're able to execute on them a bit better now, from my experience. What's fascinating to me, though, is how much people from Microsoft can kind of assume that like how GitHub should be versus what it is. Like they always can sometimes get a little bit confused that it's a separate company because that's not how the rest of Microsoft works. But it's a very deliberate decision taken at the highest levels that GitHub does remain independent and the place where developers come together.
0: Thank you so much for that answer and for all of your answers. They've been really excellent. Where can people learn more about your thoughts in general? Do you have social media, a blog, et cetera?
1: Yeah, if you head to martin.social, which was a fancy new domain name I bought myself the other day, and then you can not only find me on things like Blue Sky and stuff, but it's got links to Mastodon and Twitter and stuff like that. So yeah,
0: martin.social is a place to head to. Cool. Thank you so much. Martin That is super easy. Thank you so much. And of course, you can hear more from Martin on GitHub's The Read Me Podcast. Each month, Martin and co-host now botched a deep dive into the trends shaping the future of technology, the culture and craft of software development. Look back at the milestones and made open source what it is today, and learn from community experts. You can find that at github.com/slash readme or subscribe to the readme podcast wherever you get your podcast. Go check it out. Of course, you can learn more about maintainer month and GitHub and all the other great links by going to Github.com. Maintainer Month is maintainermonth.github.com. So obviously go check those out as well. But don't leave yet. Now is the time of the show for spotlight. Spotlights where we highlight projects, people, things, or dog toys, which have really given our lives joy and helped us out. And in general, we just think need a little bit more light put on them. Ben Nichols, what is your spotlight today? I'm afraid that my spotlight has to be one that you recommended
2: to me a few weeks ago, which is the Merlin app for recording and identifying bird song because it is spring and all the birds have started appearing. I was expecting them this weekend and on Saturday, the first Swifts appear and now there is currently six of them swirling around the house, happily screaming like a bunch of school kids. So yeah, my spotlight is the Merlin app, which I think is associated with or by Cornell University. Um, By Cornell. Yep. Yeah. If you're interested in identifying some birds around you, then there is is very good and you can contribute to the data and make the app kind of better.
0: That's my recommendation. Should work for most of the paleoarctic and North American zones. If you have any questions, you can email Richard at birdinginvermont.com. Happy to help you out there. My spotlight today is going to be just getting ears cleaned. Apparently you can just go to the doctor and as a nurse and they can like clean out your ears I hadn't done this before. I went, it cost me 30 bucks with my copay because America, and they took out an entire owl pellet. And now I can like hear again. It's actually really nice. Everything was really loud the first few days. Highly suggest just going to the doctor maybe once a year or something and getting your ears cleaned if you've never heard of that before. Wow. Wow. Martin, what's your not gross spotlight?
2: Yeah. So
1: Ben knows this about me, but the way I keep sane is by building things. Whether that's communities or whatever, but I like building electronics projects and stuff. And a project I came across recently was the WLED project, which is a way of connecting a bunch of LEDs to a low powered kind of device. If anyone's played with ESP Home, it works in a similar way. You very easily flash kind of your little device with a thing over a website, it's amazingly trivial. And then you get thing with a built-in web server that can do stuff. So what I did was I 3D printed a GitHub lamp and then I've made that available at Octolamp as a repo, which again we'll put in the show notes. But that's all just W L E D and you can do all sorts of arty lighty projects around the house. So yeah, great
0: project. Super cool project. Loving these spotlights today. Martin, thank you so much again. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have, please let us know. You can email us at podcastatsustainoss.org. We've gotten two emails since I last requested people to email. One has been spam. The other one has been, hey, can I be on the podcast? And I pretty much said yes. So email us, please. If you have any thoughts on birds or sustainability, that'd be great. You can also like this podcast on Apple or Spotify or Google or wherever you find podcasts. You can go to podcastatsustainoss.org. To learn more about the other guests, we've mentioned a lot of them today. We do have the show notes, which will be available. So do check those out. Thank you, Deanne, for your amazing show notes. You can also suggest guests for us. Please do go. And you can talk more with us at our Discord, or on Mastodon. I never, ever check the Twitter. Thank you so much, Martin. Once more, that was great. Have a great day and keep helping maintainers everywhere maintain the things that they maintain maintainably.